Uh, will you turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. Have you ever wondered why it is that uh, so-called uh, Bible churches, churches that believe the Bible and teach the Bible, are often so full of ungodliness? You would think that uh, there would be grace and truth in, in churches like that, but so often the truth is obscured by an utter lack of grace, lack of tact, lack of good manners. And sometimes there's uh, even the presence of, of real ungodliness there. Gossip and slander and malice and uh, division. Where does that sort of thing come from? You know, it's unfortunate today that fundamentalism is uh, often synonymous with bigotry and racism and class consciousness and, uh, and other sins. So much so that, uh, that uh, though the term fundamental originally meant people who believed in the essentials of the faith, the fundamentals of the faith, people that believed in the historic Christian creeds, it's come to, a, to the place now where it's difficult to even identify with that term because the term connotes so much more than it, than it originally denoted. Os Guinness, in his uh, in one of his books, says, take the typical fundamentalist. He has a sharper nose for certain things than a hunting hound and can pick up the scent of heresy a mile away. Yet you won't find anyone more insensitive to backdoor worldliness of all kinds which has crept in under his nose. Thus safely ensconced in their untainted orthodoxy, many conservative Christians have distinguished uh, themselves in this century by a catalog of profane as one of them put it to some church leaders in a flash of rare perceptiveness, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out, but if he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. Now, where does this kind of hypocrisy and, and duplicity come from? Well, Paul tells us in, uh, in chapter 2, beginning with, with verse 14. Now, if you remember, Paul is concerned about about Timothy's manhood. He's, he's coaching him, tutoring him, and what it means to be a Christian man. Uh, these are the marks of manhood in this chapter, which he, he symbolizes through a series of, of figures of speech, metaphors. He says a good man or a good woman, a, an authentically Christian man or woman, ought to be like a dedicated soldier who... Um, who keeps himself in a in a state of preparedness so he can he can respond uh, to the commands of, of his of his commanding officer, or he's like a disciplined a disciplined athlete who keeps himself in shape and who works on his uh, on his skills. He practices so he can be a winner, and then he's like a diligent farmer who, no matter how disinclined he may be to work in the field or how discouraged he may be by the results, he uh, continues to, to work hard at his task. And he's the one who eventually shares in the harvest. Now, beginning with verse 14, Paul gathers up three more symbols, three more metaphors of, uh, of a good man, of a good woman, marks of what it means to be authentically Christian. He says that Timothy ought to be like a, an unashamed uh, worker, 
an approved worker who, who has no reason to be embarrassed. He ought to be like an undefiled vessel, beginning with verse 20, clean and useful to the master. And then third, he should be uh, uh, a humble servant, an unassuming servant, verses 23 through 26. Now, everything in, the, in this last half of the chapter revolves around those three symbols, an unashamed workman, an undefiled vessel, and uh, an unassuming servant. Let's look first at uh, the worker who's described here as one who is approved. Verse 14. Remind them, that is the faithful men of, of verse 2, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to or results in the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk, or their word, will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal or this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, there, there are two types of workmen that are envisioned in this, uh, in this paragraph. There is the approved workman who has no need to be ashamed, and there is a disapproved workman who has every reason in the world to be ashamed of himself. And the difference between the two is crystal clear. The approved workman, as Paul puts it, handles accurately the word of truth. The disapproved workman, according to verse 18, has gone astray from the truth. He has missed the mark, literally. And uh, thus uh, he, ought to be, uh, he ought to be ashamed. So the difference has to do with the way people handle the Word of God. And we have to keep in mind in looking at this passage that we're talking about ways to teach the Scripture. Remember in chapter 1, Paul underscores the importance of the Gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the only thing that will save the world. It's the only thing that has the power to set people's lives right. Therefore, in chapter 2, Paul says, Timothy, you've got to entrust it to faithful people who can teach it to others. And now in chapter 14, he shifts his focus slightly away from the content of the word to the methodology of teaching it. He's talking about the way in which we teach and what he will say in this uh, final paragraph from 14 through, through 26 is how we do what we do is just as important as what we do and that we need to keep in mind the purpose of what we're doing. We're talking about teaching scripture, and we have to keep that in mind. We're not talking about studying heretical books. We're not studying, talking about studying the Koran. We're talking about Bible teaching. And Paul says it's possible to teach the Bible in such a way that you ruin people. We get our word cat, uh, catastrophe from the word that's, that's translated ruin here. You can do something catastrophic to people, Paul says, by teaching them the Bible. You can ruin them. There is such a thing as bad Bible study, in other words. And it's something to be, uh, to be avoided. Now, the key phrase in this uh, opening paragraph, 14 through 19, is uh, the one that's translated 
Handling accurately the word of truth. Uh, those two words, handle accurately, are a translation of one, one verb in the text that means to cut straight to the goal. Uh, it's, it's a Greek word, ortho tomeo. Tomeo means to cut. Ortho means straight. We use that word in English. Uh, an orthodontist is someone who straightens your teeth. Uh, if you are orthodox, then you have your doctrine straight. Ortho means straight. Tomeo means cut. It means to cut straight, but specifically to cut straight to the goal. So the question is, what is the goal of Bible teaching? Howard Hendricks tells a story about a time he stepped up to a pulpit like this, and uh, the pastor who normally taught there had a plaque on the pulpit that read, What in the world are you doing to these people? And he, he said that stuck with him. And it ought to stick with us. Whenever we study the Bible, whenever we teach it, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing with this book? What's the purpose of it all? What's the goal? Paul says when you study the Bible, when you teach the Scriptures, you need to go for the goal. What's the goal? Well, the goal is not mere acquisition of knowledge. We need to keep that straight. It's not getting our doctrinal ducks in a row. There's something far more important than that at stake. The reason we study the Bible is to get to know God and to love Him and to worship Him and submit to Him and learn to be like Him. And if, we're, if that's not the purpose of Bible study, we have missed the point of the whole thing, you see? And the result is that we, we ruin people. If you want to turn back a few pages to 1 Timothy 1, Chapter 1. Paul says in verse 5, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is not the production of theologians, but people that are, that are more loving, more kind, more gentle, more gracious. People that are living reminders of the presence of Christ. That's the purpose, you see. People who are more merciful, more compassionate, more morally tough, stronger, more dignified in their behavior. You see, that's the purpose of it all. And then if you want to turn uh, on a couple of pages to the book of Titus, which is the next, uh, next book after 2 Timothy, Paul says, As for you, Titus, speak the things that are fitting, for sound doctrine, the things that are consonant with sound doctrine. Keep your doctrine sound, keep it straight, get it, you know, understand the truth, proclaim it accurately. But uh, remember the things that go along with sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Do you see what Paul is saying? The important thing is not merely to get the doctrine straight, but to help people to live lives that are consonant with the truth in Scripture to help them to know God and to love Him and to worship Him and to be like Him in, in their behavior. That's the purpose of it all. And if we don't keep that, in, that purpose in mind, if we merely wrangle about words, as Paul puts it, we will ruin people. The results will be, will be catastrophic. So the purpose of all Bible teaching is to go for the goal. The production of people that are like Jesus Christ. The alternative 
If we wrangle over words, is to produce ruin. Now, that was the sort of thing that Jesus was concerned uh, about with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, as Bob Dylan puts it, masters of the, of the book and masters of the proposition. They were the arch conservatives of their day, the fighting fundamentalists. They were the people who, who believed in the, in the authority and in, in the inerrancy of the text of Scripture, and they were the protectors of that, of that text, and their scribes were the teachers of that day. Most of us, if we lived in, in that era, would have been Pharisees. The Sadducees were the religious liberals. The Essenes were a group of people that, uh, that built a kind of a Bible city off by the Dead Sea and isolated themselves from the, from the rest of the world, and they didn't have much of an influence on anyone. It was the Pharisees who were the, the conservators of the text. They believed in it. They taught the Scriptures, and yet Jesus said of them, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. And they are they which test, that is the scriptures, are they which testify to me, and you will not come to me that you might have eternal life. They made the scriptures an end in itself. They made the mere acquisition of of theological knowledge the end of it all, and they missed the whole point. They missed the Lord when he came. As as the songwriter put it, beyond the sacred page, we see you, Lord. The, The purpose of looking into the scripture is to see the Lord and to submit to him, and to be like him. And if we're not doing that, we've missed the point of it all. We, we may have our, our doctrine as straight as we can get it, but it, if our lives are not displaying more of the grace of, of our Lord Jesus, we've missed the point of all of our Bible study, you see. Now, where wherein do we wrangle? Well, I, I think... For example, we're inclined to wrangle over uh, things like modes of baptism. One of the, the really unfortunate things, I think, in the church is the fact that we've divided over something that Scripture is not at all clear about. The issue, the, the difference between modes of baptism is not uh, based upon how seriously you take the Bible because there are people who take the Bible very seriously, who disagree on this issue. Because the mode is moot in Scripture. It's just not at all clear. For myself, I believe in immersion because it seems to me that the word baptism in the New Testament suggests immersion. It means to dip. It seems to be uh, the, the best way to, to symbolize our death, burial, and resurrection in Christ. And certainly it appears from the New Testament records that, that the early church uh, immersed. But we can't be sure. Uh, do you sprinkle on top of the head? Do you immerse the entire body? Does it really make any difference? Uh, I heard a story one time about a Presbyterian and a Baptist that were debating this issue. Presbyterians, you know, sprinkle and Baptists immerse. And the Presbyterian said to the Baptist, uh, if, if, when you put them in your, uh, in your baptismal if the water only comes up to their knees, are they baptized? And the Baptist said, oh, no, no. What if it comes to the waist? No. What if it comes to the neck? No. What, if, it, if it's over their head, does that constitute a valid baptism? And the Baptist said triumphantly, yes. And the Presbyterian, that's what I thought. It's water on the top of the head that matters. <laughs> and uh, 
frankly, the issue sometimes is just that silly. Does it really matter? I know churches where you can't teach in that church. You can't become a member of that church unless you've been immersed. And, and in some churches that teach immersion, you, you, if you're immersed in somebody else's church, you have to be immersed again in their church. And it's this endless splitting of hairs and dividing up over issues that people are uncertain about. That's so tragic in the church. It's a preoccupation with doctrine itself. The whole point is, what does baptism mean to you? I'm not saying it's unimportant to have your your thinking straight scripturally. We need to get it straight. But the real question is, what is it doing to us in terms of our character? Is it really changing us? Is it making us more like our Lord? All of this hair splitting that, that we do over eschatology, does it really matter? Do you realize that no one, no one in the church believed in a pre-tribulation rapture until the end of the 19th century? Are you really willing to separate yourself from 1,900 years of Christian thinkers and Christian saints on the basis of an eschatological belief? You ought to make up your mind on the basis of Scripture. I'm not saying not to, but what difference does it make? The real question, is: when we get through studying a passage of Scripture together, does it draw us closer to God, and does it draw us closer to one another? And if it doesn't, then we've missed the mark. We've ruined one another by studying the Bible. You see, that's Paul's point. And it can get worse. Verse 17, their talk, that is, those who wrangle about words will spread like gangrene. It will go from bad to worse. A mere wound will become much more serious, and it will lead to heresy. And Paul singles out these two, Hymenaeus and Philetus, of whom we know very little. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy, but we know nothing about him except that he apparently was spiritualizing the resurrection. He had been led into heresy because he was wrangling over words. And the result was that the faith of some were being overturned. Verse 19 is a, is a parenthetical comment that Paul inserts here to encourage Timothy. The faith of some is being upset, but not to worry, Timothy. It's all right because the foundation is firm. There is a solid foundation underlying the church, and it has this twofold inscription. God knows those that are his. No one gets away. From God if they're truly his. And secondly, let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Two quotations from number 16, which give us both sides of, of, uh, of this uh, problem of human sovereignty and divine, res- and, uh, pardon me, uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we're so concerned about. What Paul is saying is there's this twofold inscription. God knows those who are his. They won't get away if they're truly his. And if they are truly his, they will recognize the error in the system and they will eventually get out of it. They'll choose out. Uh, I often think of this passage when friends of mine get caught up in cults. If they really belong to God, they're not lost to him. He knows where they are. And if they belong to God, they will eventually see through the error of that cult and they'll get out. I'm convinced the only people who want to, who get caught in cults and stay there are people who want be. So this is a word of comfort to Timothy. The faith of some is being upset, but it's all right, Timothy, because those that are truly his, truly God's, will endure. Now in verse 20, he uh, changes the metaphor to that of a vessel, an undefiled vessel. 
Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good good work. Now, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The, uh, the metaphor changes here to, uh, to an inanimate object, a vessel. Paul's drawing his illustration from a, from a Roman home. They had two types of, of vessels or containers in the, in the household. There were vessels that you ate from, and there were vessels that were used for other purposes that were not uh, fit to eat from. You, you don't serve food on these things. There, were, there was the wedgewood and the, and the sterling and the pottery that, that the family ate from. And then there were vessels that were used for washing dishes and carrying out wastewater and those sorts of things. Paul says in a Roman house, you know that that sort of thing is true. And in God's house, the same thing is true. There are vessels to honor and there are vessels to dishonor. The vessels here represent teachers. And uh, folks like you and me who have the responsibility of proclaiming the truth to people formally and informally. And uh, the, the measure of usefulness is very clear here. Paul says, Timothy, if you want to be useful, if you want to be prepared for every good work, you have to cleanse yourself from these things, not the people, but the attitudes. Verse 21 is, or verse 20, excuse me, verse 21 is in parallel with verse uh, 16. In verse 16, He commands Timothy to avoid worldly and empty chatter. In verse 21, he says, cleanse yourself from these things. If you do, you will be a a vessel for honor, sanctified, that is, put to your intended use. Sanctified means to set something aside for a special use and put it to that use. You're sanctifying those chairs by sitting in them. You sanctify your cars when you... uh, when you get in them after the service and you go home. Sanctification is putting something to its intended purpose. And Paul says, Timothy, you'll be what God intends you to be if you cleanse yourself from the attitudes that are displayed by these disapproved uh, teachers. You'll be useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then in verse 22... He repeats this admonition by the use of these two verbs that are set in contrast to each other. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee, that is, uh, seek safety and flight from the attitudes that ruin and... uh, and destroy the work of God in people that produce greater ungodliness. Flee from these things and pursue after, after righteousness, after godly character. Now, very often uh, this, this command, flee from youthful lusts, is applied to Timothy's sexual passions. But uh, sex is nowhere in the context. He's, I'm sure Timothy, being a young man, had a problem with sexual passions. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. 
the youthful lusts or passions that he's talking about are the uh, the passions that uh, so many young people have to be argumentative, uh, to to want to dazzle people with their minds, to simply want to acquire truth and keep all their ideas up in the air without committing themselves to anyone. These are the passions of youthful idealism. That's where they come from. But Paul says, flee from these things, from the tendency to engage in endless debate over theological subjects without ever coming to conclusions and without ever applying this truth to life. Seek safety and flight from this and rather pursue after righteousness. That is, pursue after right conduct, both in yourself and in those that you instruct. Teach the men and women that, that you're instructing from the Scripture to do what's right. That's what Paul means. Teach men to be ethical in their business, above board, honest in their dealings with people. Teach men in business to tell the truth. Teach them to, uh, to care for their, their employees and not to abuse them verbally or, or to use them for their own purposes. Te- teach the men that you're responsible for to, to come home at night and, and put down the newspaper and crawl out of the television set and, and, and help their wives with the children and, and make themselves available as servants to the members of, of their family. Teach them... To be more romantic and and to meet the emotional needs of their wives. Teach the women not to be preoccupied with themselves and and the way they look outwardly. Not to be preoccupied with with diets and aerobics and and clothes. Not to be obsessed by those things, but, but teach them rather to be occupied with the inner person. Learning to be a woman of, of strength and, and dignity. Teach them to do what's right. That's that's what Paul is saying. Be very specific about the way the truth is applied. And secondly, teach them to be full of faith. See, righteousness and then faith. In other words, people should walk out of our study of the word more believing, more dependent upon Christ, uh, more yielded to his will, independently dependent upon him. And teach them to be more more faithful. That is, not only more dependent, but more dependable. Teach them to, to follow through when they make a promise. To swear to their own hurt, as Psalm 15 puts it. Uh, one of the Proverbs says, Every man will declare his own goodness, but a faithful man, who can find? Faithful people are in, in short supply in the world today. People who are not flaky, who will do what they say they will do, no matter what it, what it costs them. Teach them to be faithful as well as, as full of faith. And teach them to be loving and generous and giving and caring and compassionate. And teach them how to be peaceful and tranquil. To have, to have poise in the face of awkward and, and difficult situations. See, that's, that's what Paul means when he says, flee from youthful passions, that is, the desire to intellectually debate doctrine and, and, and use your intelligence to put other people down and, and put them in their place, resist all of that, and rather pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, 
love, peace. Those are the things that matter. And do that, Paul says, in concert with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is to compensate for the company he still avoids. Don't associate with those that that uh, bring out the worst in you, he says. Who, who uh, Don't associate with their ideas. Rather, associate with those who have settled in their heart this issue that they're not going to try to dazzle people with their with their knowledge. You see, It's an issue that has to be settled in the heart. As Proverbs puts it, or as the psalm puts it, it's out of the heart that the issues of, of life comes. It's an issue that has to be dealt with in the heart. And we're not going to do that with the word. We're going to humbly submit to it, and we're going to teach others to do the same. Now, the, the, the final, the final uh, metaphor here in verses 23 through 26. Now, I'm into your five minutes, and uh, I will be done at uh, 20 minutes after. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Now, note that is a command. That's not a a piece of good advice. That's not one option for Christians. That's a command. Don't be argumentative. Now, uh, Paul is not prohibiting controversy because Paul was a controversialist. There were times when Paul had to head right into very difficult situations. He had to rebuke uh, Peter in public. And Jesus did too. There there were times that Jesus was tough on people. But if we stop and think for a moment, the people that Jesus was tough on were the people that we usually are easy on, and the people that Jesus was easy on were the people that that we're normally tough on. Jesus was hard and harsh to religious phonies, churchmen, people who ought to know better, hypocrites, very straightforward and frank with them, but always gentle with sinners, with people outside, with prostitutes, with uh, people that were struggling with their sin. He was always gentle and kindly toward those, you see. Now, Paul is talking about people that will oppose us, people who may resist our teaching because they don't know any better, because, as he will say, they've been ensnared by the devil to do his will. So Paul says, refuse foolish, ignorant speculations, knowing they produce quarrels, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, gentle, say, kindly, able to teach, skillful in teaching, uh, frank, sometimes brutally frank with people, faithful in proclamation of the word, never pulling your punches, bold about your proclamation of the truth, but never brash, you see, never rude, never discourteous. Kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Interesting statement. God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Brian Fisher pointed out to me this past week that this is another of those instances in the New Testament where knowledge of the truth is based upon a moral issue and not an intellectual issue. The reason people don't know the truth is not because they can't intellectually comprehend it, but because they have a moral problem. And that's why Paul puts it this way. The problem is sin. When they repent of the sin, when they change their mind about their need for a Savior, then they can see the truth. They can acknowledge the truth. But you see, 
there's something going on here that we're not always aware of. This is a, a peek behind the scenes. Paul shows us that the real enemy is not the person who's opposing us, the person who resists our proclamation of the truth. The real enemy is the devil. He's the enemy. The people that we minister to are victims of the enemy. They've been duped. They've been drugged. And, and Paul says they, they may come to their senses. There's no guarantee that they will. But if they're to come to their senses at all, and if God is to grant them repentance, it will come because of the way we treat them. You see what Paul is saying? How we do what we do is just as important as what we do. We must not lash people with the truth. We must not lay the law on them. We have to teach them the truth. We have to be, be very straight ourselves about the truth and proclaim it boldly. But we have to do it gently, without acrimony. Without being argumentative, we have to be willing to take our shots when people misunderstand us. That's what he means when he says patient when wronged. People may misquote us. They may misunderstand us. They may oppose us vigorously. They may get downright hostile and mean, but that's all right, Paul says. We're to, we're to respond with love. We're to be gentle and courteous. Never rude. Never unmannerly. Always civil, you see. And that's the way Jesus was with those that that opposed him. Oh, I am so frustrated. Well, we'll just wrap this thing up. What Paul is saying in this chapter it basically is three things. Each... each each point that he wants to make revolves around one of these symbols, that of an unashamed worker, an undefiled vessel, and an unassuming servant. I believe what Paul is saying is this. First of all, we need to be certain of our goal. The purpose of teaching the scriptures is not to create theologians, but living reminders of Christ, people who make visible the invisible Christ. Now, that's true of our own personal Bible study and our instruction of others. Secondly, we need to be circumspect about our companions. As Paul puts it in another place, evil companions corrupt good manners. And there are some people who bring out the worst in us. People that love to debate Scripture, simply to debate Scripture. People who study the Bible as an end in itself, but who don't see through the, the page to Jesus. We need to, to avoid those attitudes. And then thirdly, we must always be courteous in our demeanor. Courageous, but never discourteous. Bold, but never brash. Now that, that's a tall order. And, and who of us can, can behave in that way? What, what I sensed from studying this passage, again, is the fact that this is serious business. We're not playing games. This is serious business. We hold in our hands the instrument that will lead people into salvation. As Paul puts it in this book, this book will make you wise into salvation. And, and we as a church are the secret underpinnings of society because we, we have the truth from the apostles in this book. It's not anything to be personally proud of. It's, a simple, it's simply a fact that we have 
the word from Christ himself through the apostles in this book. And, and we need to proclaim it. But how we proclaim it is just as important as the fact of its proclamation. We must be, be courteous to people and kind and gentle and loving because the two are inexorably linked. As Paul puts it in another place, we must speak the truth in love. We, we, we cannot merely speak the truth and we cannot merely love people. That's just sentimentalism. We have to speak the truth in love. But if truth is coupled with love, then that seems to get through peop- to people because they begin to see in us the character that the gospel itself produces. You see? It, it looks real and authentic to them. Now, that's, that's a tall order. That's an impossible order. And that's why Paul began this entire discussion in chapter 2 by saying to Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about random displays of strength, as I said last week. He's talking about strength to proclaim the truth in the proper way to people. And we can only do that through grace, through Christ's resources. It's only by getting a grip upon him and letting him get a grip upon us that we can be strong to carry out this task. Evelyn Underwood put it this way. The quality or virtue which the Holy Spirit produces in our souls has three distinguishing characteristics. Tranquility, gentleness, and strength. All our action must be peaceful, gentle, and strong. That suggests, doesn't it, doesn't it, an immense depth and an invulnerable steadiness as the soul's abiding temper, a depth and a steadiness which come from the fact that our small action is part of the total action of God whose spirit always works in tranquility. Fuss and feverishness, argumentativeness, anxiety, intensity, intolerance, instability, pessimism and wobble and every kind of hurry and worry, these, even on the highest levels, are signs of the self-made and the self-acting soul. But real saints are never like that. They share the quiet and noble qualities of the one to whom they belong. And by God's grace, so will we. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this reminder again of the power of the good news and for the necessity of proclaiming it, for the marvelous thing that it can do in our lives and in the lives of others when we take it seriously and begin to share it with people. But Lord, we, we need the same grace that characterized your ministry that, that so beautifully exemplified that balance of grace and truth, always truthful, never equivocating, and yet always gracious and kindly, thoughtful, sensitive, loving, compassionate. We ask for that balance, and and we thank you that we have it because of your indwelling presence, and we can act upon it through this week. We thank you for it, in Jesus' name.